This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our author is cultural reporter for the New York Times and four-time book author Dave Itzkoff. We spoke with him as he was on tour in November of 2019 with his then-brand-new book, Robin, a biography of Robin Williams by publisher Pan McMillian. Dave Itzkoff is a journalist that has covered the worlds of film, theater, TV, and pop culture, and he would need to use his knowledge of all of those worlds to take on the subject of the comedian and actor Robin Williams when he decided to write his biography. The multi-talented artist that died back in 2014 had previously given some interviews with Itzkoff back in 2008 and 2009. Those talks, coupled with more than another 100 interviews with family and friends, helped Dave learn about the ways that Williams connected to his fame and his fans. People really, you know, opened their hearts to him and really wanted to tell him how much he meant to them, how much his work had meant to them, and tough times in their life when they turned to a particular stand-up routine or a movie. When he had interactions with people in the public, he didn't want to brush people off and he didn't want to say, you know, sorry, I don't have time to sign this autograph or I can't stop and talk to you on the street. He knew how much, you know, those little interactions on his part, how much they meant to people. And, you know, even a minute of his time is something that somebody could hold on to forever. And he also learned about the darker world of depression and addiction that Williams occupied. We'll take a deep dive into the career of the iconic comedian and actor Robin Williams and learn about his journey through Hollywood and later life. Culture writer Dave Itzkoff on this edition of Talking With Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Andy Whitinger. Dave Itzkoff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me over. You know, your book, Robin Williams, he lived just 63 63 years. And yet, we were just talking, at the end of your book, you have the list of all of his movies. 69 movies, I think it totaled up to. Yeah. These, all these comedy specials, a couple of television shows. You know, and, and you cover it so intimately in, in your book, and you want to keep reading about it. And it's, it's such a, a good coverage of his life. How long did it take you to, to pull together this compelling piece about this man? Well, I, the book itself was a project that took about four years, just you know, maybe a year or two of just the reporting, talking to people, looking for recommendations and sources, and also trying to find archival material on Robin, getting to work with some of the personal papers that he had had archived before he died, uh, just trying to immerse myself in what was out there and find out as much as I could before I started writing, which was another year or so beyond that. But even before I was working on the book, I had interviewed him a few times, uh, you know, just as a reporter for the New York Times where I work. And uh, some of those encounters go back, uh, you know, to 2009, 2008. So, uh, I, you know, I certainly didn't know I'd be using some of that material for this. But uh, you know, I, I had been thinking about him for a while, I would say. During that research, I think in, in the back of your book, you mentioned a hundred, more than a hundred interviews that you did, and a lot of them with close family, friends. 
you also talk about how this family was very private. So how did you get in? It sounds like you had some really great connections with his son, Zach, and yeah. his wife, Alex. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I had written about Robin, uh, you know, a few times uh, while he was still alive. And uh, one story in particular that I worked on was in 2009, and I went on tour with him for a few days and kind of got to know some of the people in his world. And even after, he, he took a break from the tour at one point and was in New York and, and we got together, not for anything related to the story, but uh, he introduced me to Zach, who was living in New York at the time. We were roughly the same age or a few years apart. And just through that, I mean, I got exposed to, you know, family members of his, friends of his. Uh, but certainly, you know, after he died and, and you know, I mean, given how the, the tragic circumstances and the uncertainty around it, uh, you know, it also required a lot of patience to give people time to mourn and to just make peace with his loss. Uh, also to accept the fact that there were going to be certain people that were not going to want to talk uh, because either they felt too private about it. They, you know, their memories of Robin were too uh, personal. They were, didn't want to have to share them with the world. So I, I recognize that. It was, it was quite involved. Well, it is something that, you know, it took a lot of time because Robin's career, uh, you know, had so much breadth to it. And just the, the life that he led before he got famous and before he was working professionally, he had a fascinating childhood and upbringing and a family before yeah. he was born. And even his sort of training, his time in the various colleges he attended, he was a student at Juilliard for three years, and then his his time as a stand-up comedian, both in San Francisco and Los Angeles, that's all before he gets onto Happy Days and then Mork and Mindy. And it's, there's a lot of material there. It's dense, and it's I think it was worth looking into because you really learn his origins and you understand why he was the person that he was for the rest of his life, that the seeds that got sown then uh, really made him who he was. We were talking beforehand, as a reader, you go through and you're reading it and you're looking for those little clues as to maybe why his life ended so early or, you know, you kind of are searching for those things. I think to a certain extent. I mean, there are a lot of complications at the end of his life sure. and health problems, but he was also a person who was always thinking about what the end of his life was going to look like, what his last years were going to be. And somebody who, I mean, you can see it in his material, in his comedy routines and in his some of his performances, this concern about, well, you know, maybe I'm successful now in my 20s and 30s, but what might happen in my 60s if my fan base lost interest in me, if they moved on to other people, if, if my own health started to go and I couldn't be this kind of rapid fire person anymore, what would that be like? And these are things that he was thinking about, you know, 30 years prior. It's, uh, you know, a little, uh, you know, eerie in a way that, mm -hmm. that things kind of panned out the way that they did. And I mean, he worked a lot because yeah. I mean, 69 movies, I mean, you were talking about like two a year. I mean, yeah. he was all, he'd get off one and go right to another. Yeah. Well, and, he had a pretty relentless work ethic. I mean, it was something that he enjoyed doing for sure, but also he just had a, a, a drive and, and, you know, wanted to be out there and wanted to keep busy and was also to a certain extent somebody who was always looking over his shoulder about, you know, who's coming up behind me and, you know, even in the 1980s before he had really made it in film, uh, even though he was successful as a stand-up and on TV, he looked at somebody like Eddie Murphy and said, okay, well, there's a guy who's successful, you know, 
on TV as a stand-up and in movies. So he's got it all figured out. I don't. He is better than me. He's surpassing me. Not that he had a rivalry with Murphy, but that's just how he thought of him. And then it, 10 years later, even after Robin had a lot of success in film, then he sees Jim Carrey right. coming up. And then he kind of goes through a similar thing where he's like, okay, uh, you know, I'm the f- old flavor of the month and Jim Carrey's the new thing and people like him better and he's the guy who's going to take over now. And always kind of looking out for those kinds of, that that sort of self-fostered sense of competition. Yeah, a lot of self-doubt it sounded like too. Absolutely. You, you mentioned it uh, in The Birdcage that a, a co-star with him, it was Nathan Lane, Nathan right? Nathan Lane, that's right. Mentioned that they both were the most needy, or I, I forget the quote, <laughs> but both really needed... People to say, you're great, you're yeah. doing wonderful, right? It was a very unusual pairing because in that movie, it was really, Nathan Lane's character was really more of the kind of the over-the-top guy. And that was not, you know, uh, it's not a place that Robin was always used to being in. If he was in the movie, he was the guy that, you know, had all the kind of rapid-fire moments and he was, you know, the guy that everybody reacted to and kind of, uh, not that he yielded that entirely to Nathan Lane, but even having to share that kind of a, a spotlight with somebody was unusual and and something that took a little bit of adjustment for him. Let's talk about the other part of your research with the Boston College letters and scripts that they, that must have yeah, been a so treasure this is, trove. Uh, it's uh, Boston University. I'm sorry, yeah, Boston not, University, yes. the, the treasure trove that you found of scripts and letters, right? Yeah, that they, uh, basically Robin had, uh, I mean, this whole archive and long before his death and his health problems that he, you know, that that were acquired by uh, Boston University, that they have a whole, uh, you know, research library and division there that acquires, uh, like they have uh, a lot of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s papers, Michael Douglas's papers, really interesting uh, collection. It's the the Howard Gottlieb Library, and uh, I I you know spent you know a week or so just going through what they had on Robin, and so as as you say, I mean there was a lot of his correspondence. Uh, letters that he received throughout his career. I mentioned this a lot, but there's a letter that uh, Mr. Rogers wrote to him after Dead Poets Society came out, and Mr. Rogers had gone to see the movie and loved it and wrote to Robin about how meaningful it was to him. Uh, but also, you know, Robin had held on to basically every time he was on a TV show or made a movie, Robin did, you know, handwritten annotations on all of his scripts that he would be shooting every day and make notes to himself about, you know, changing a line or thinking of a bit or a routine that he could do. And so all of that was there going all the way back to the very first episode of Happy Days that he played Mork from Ork. And even earlier in his career when he was making, you know, appearances on these very short-lived sketch comedy shows that he had been on before uh, Mork and Mindy came out. So really you see, uh, you know, in all of his films and all the TV appearances, and certainly in the in the comedy routines as well, yes, he was great at improvisation. He was a great ad-libber, but not everything was sort of made up in the moment. He did a lot of preparation to seem, you know, that spontaneous. 
that's that's what was so telling in the book is because yeah. I think yeah that was a misconception that a lot of people but in seeing all these annotations you yeah. could see exactly the amount of research that went in sure and certainly for something like Good Morning Vietnam where he was doing all the sort of DJ routines and again those all look like they're kind of happening on the fly and in real time and that took tons of work on Robin's part where you know he, well before he went out they shot the movie in Thailand so before he traveled to make the film. Uh, they gave him all this research material on just like the history of like that period of time in the 1960s and like what kind of news would if you you know if you were in Vietnam in the mid 60s and listening to an American military radio channel what kind of news would the news uh, you know the news announcers be talking about so that he had that kind of raw material and then you know he wrote little bits for himself and one-liners and wrote them and rewrote them and you know 15 different jokes about you know lbj having unattractive daughters and every possible variation on that and then so by the time he goes in front of a camera you know he's got all these different jokes and bits sort of you know in his back pocket all kind of cataloged in his brain and what he's kind of doing in real time is figuring out like you know where do i deploy this line or how do i put this in a logical order or he might still be making up things or having you know inventions in the moment and then you know including that with the stuff that he was already you know writing down you know a week or a month earlier right but the talent of of making it come across that it just popped out of his absolutely mouth. i mean as audience members we watch that and we still feel like like we're watching it happen live and that was part of the genius of what he did that he could make you feel that way and make you believe it the letters added so much in yeah. the book because so many of them I was like, oh, wow, I mean, where, where did you find these? But that was all. Yeah, a lot mm -hmm. of it was in the archives. Occasionally somebody would maybe pr provide like a letter or a piece of correspondence. But he had he had saved so much himself and even the stuff that I would see from fans, uh, stuff that, you know, it was people really, you know, opened their hearts to him and really wanted to tell him how much he meant to them, how much their work his work had meant to them and tough times in their life when they turned to a particular stand-up routine or a movie and they wanted him to know that. But he felt a lot of pressure because of that as well, right? I think a certain obligation, yes. That when you see that or you hear that from people so often and you start to realize what you mean to them and you want to live up to that to a certain extent. And I think that's why, I mean, as I was saying earlier, that when he had interactions with people in the public uh, that he, you know, he didn't want to brush people off and he didn't want to say, you know, sorry, I don't have time to sign this autograph or I can't stop and talk to you on the street. He knew how much, you know, those little interactions on his part, how much they meant to people. And, you know, even a minute of his time was something that somebody could hold on to forever. But I think, you know, they're just tiny little transactions. But for him to do that, you know, over and over over many years, it adds up. You, you write in your book that Robin Williams, Williams was a hero of yours. Yeah. Back to when you saw him at age four in Popeye. Well, I have this really vivid memory of seeing Popeye in the theaters. It's when a, it's a movie that's not, I mean, he even made fun of it sometimes in his oh, stand-up, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it was. But he it, did it. It was not, you know, he was great friends with Christopher Reeve, who had had all that success with Superman. Right. And I think Robin went into Popeye thinking, well, this is going to do for me what Superman did for Chris. And it wasn't that not kind exactly. of an experience. Yeah. yeah. He got his success a little bit later. <laughs> uh, and it's just such a, you know, the comic itself is so strange that to try to do it, you know, in live action 
as a musical and the color palette is so kind of drab and the characters are really cruel to each other at first, it's weird to kind of get yourself oriented in the world of that film. Uh, but I loved it at the time and it still has a lot of uh, meaning to me. And that was really my first exposure to, to Robin. That was my introduction to him. Is that a hero of yours? Why, why did you classify him as that? Well, I think that has more to do with having some exposure to him later in his life when I got to interview him and meet him and uh, particularly, you know, there was one time, I mean, this, this bigger feature that I wrote where I toured with him, it was a really tough time in his life because he'd had basically a really bad set of experiences going from, like, he had uh, relapsed uh, into alcoholism and had gone to rehab to get clean, and after he got out of rehab, he and his wife, Marcia, got divorced. They had been together some 20 years and then he started going on this tour and had a big heart problem and right. had to come off the road to get valve replacement surgery. So that was all that was sort of in the background when he and I finally got together. And I remember being somewhat anxious in the sense that, like, you know, these are hard things for anybody to talk about. One of and, those things, yeah. right? And then put all of them together. Yeah. yeah. And celebrities in particular, are, I mean, they're they're very guarded people and they – uh, they're, of course, really good at, like, if they don't want to talk about something, they find kind of elliptical or diplomatic ways to discuss it. And he was not like that at all, that he really put everything out on the table and really wanted people to know what he had been through, wanted to talk about, especially, I think, the experience of, of going to rehab and getting clean and being very cognizant of how, you know, he had hurt people while he was drinking and, and the ways that he had wronged people. And I thought that was there was something noble about that, about being so open. And I'm sure that, you know, being in recovery, having had heart surgery, those kinds of things make you uh, more confessional and make you want to put yourself out there. And uh, But to see him go through that, uh, it really stuck with me. That's really interesting because I know a lot of people who had interviewed him or who had met him just in comedy places and things, talked about how they couldn't get to know him, right? It was always the character. Yeah. And and I'm sure you've witnessed that by interviewing other comedians. It's like they're always on. He, he but could, you got past that with him, it sounds like. I mean, he like. could be that way, too. I mean, even in, like, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations that I would have with him, not that he, you know, he'd be answering a question of yours and he'd still, you know, slip in a voice or a bit or a character. I think that was just, at that point, that was so ingrained in him. I think partly because... You know, he always he wanted people to come away with a kind of Robin Williams experience, and he knew everybody wanted that from him. And also, it was his way of, especially if he didn't know you, it kind of you know kept people uh, at a little bit of a remove. You know, you could be like a safe distance, and he didn't have to totally open up to that person. But I, that was the thing, just like an instinctual uh, mechanism of his by that point. But even. You know, you could have a conversation with him, and his sort of natural mode was much more uh, even, and his voice was very serene and quiet, and he was pretty, you know, intellectual, although he also had these very kind of, uh, you know, uh, he was really into pop culture and low culture and you know, comic books and action figures, and we bonded over that. So, uh, you know, I think he was, it was that sort of arrested adolescent in him. Talk about that a little bit and, yeah. and, and, you know, kind of in the context of who he was really like. I mean, you yeah. talk about he took you to a comic book store. Yeah, that was something that we did just uh, not even for for the articles that I wrote, but just when I met him that time. I mean, I, I told him about 
a store in New York that I like to shop at, and it was a store that he also liked. He's like, oh, the next time I'm in New York, if you want to get together, we'll go there. And I said, sure, and not really ever expecting that he'd follow through on that. people say those things all yeah, the time, Yeah, yeah, right? just like a pleasantry. And sure. then like a month later, he really did call me up, and we went shopping, and he showed up by himself, and he didn't have his assistant with him or like a bodyguard or any kind of entourage it was just you know just here, yeah and and that's how he engaged with the world and certainly uh, you know people were very surprised to see him because you just you don't have that kind of relationship with him and sometimes it's hard to imagine like oh these are real flesh and blood people like you and me and and just to be a bystander to that of course like you get this kind of like secondhand celebrity like you're not the person that everybody is there to kind of drool over but you see how they're reacting and you can kind of step back from that and and kind of smile and it was it was really fascinating to see how he negotiated that because that was every day of his life he oh he could never really lose that he could never really go out into a public setting and not have that experience because that's who he was and this was you know, 30, 35 years into his career now. Wow. Uh, and it, it, you know, to to live that way for so long, even when you want to kind of be normal and treated as a regular person, I mean, it can't not have an effect on you. It's interesting because it reminds me a lot of, and you, you talk about this, the, the Mork and Mindy episode where Mork meets Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was, I mean, so early in his career, but already talking about those very things that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, that was done almost kind of, it was almost a, a joke in, in the sense that, it, you know, the premise of the episode is that it's sort of treating, you know, there's Mork, the character and the world that he exists in. And even in his world, there's the real Robin Williams right. coming to play a concert. And so, they meet and everybody thinks that Mork looks like Robin Williams and Mork doesn't sort of recognize that for himself. And so Robin also plays himself in that episode. And when they finally get to kind of talk to each other, Robin, as he plays himself, is very kind of, I mean, very sensitive and a little bit uh, shell-shocked and kind of warning Mork. Like being a celebrity is a hard thing and people want things from you and you never know sort of where to draw the line and it's much more of a burden than you realize and at the very end of the episode as these episodes always ended with Mork kind of giving a report back to his alien master back on the planet Orc and it's much it's not really a comedic monologue it's much sadder and it's Mork kind of enumerating all these celebrities who had died very young or before their time and the last person that he names is John Lennon who had just been killed a few weeks before that episode was filmed so these are things that were really on Robin's mind at the time, this is like 1980, 1981, that he's already grappling with the sort of the burden of celebrity and what it does to people. I mean, for him to recognize that so early, and I mean, that yeah. was his first big break, really, and that yeah. already, that I mean, obviously that sitcom really just skyrocketed his career, but to have that already yeah. so early. There were already a couple of cautionary tales in Hollywood at that time. There was, uh, we don't remember it as well now, but Freddie Prinze, who was the star of Chico and the Man, who was a stand-up comedian who got famous really fast and went right to TV and then died in this, uh, it might have been suicide, it might have been an accidental death. Uh, and then shortly after, you know, as Robin was basically winding down on Mork and Mindy, uh, that's when he kind of became friendly with John Belushi and he was one of the last people to see Belushi, the night before Belushi died of this horrible overdose. 
So, you know, Robin had had a couple of, you know, kind of warnings already about, like, this is the danger of fame and that, you know, that it really can, uh, you know, if you live a hard life like that and you try to burn the candle at every end, it takes uh, a pretty quick toll on you. Even in that Mork and Mindy episode that we talked about, he kind of harkens back to his upbringing in the Midwest. And, you know, he had a very posh upbringing, it sounds like, in both Detroit and Chicago. That's right. Uh, His father was an executive for Ford, Ford Motor Company. And so the family moved around a lot, just wherever Ford needed his dad to be. And so they made a lot of money for sure. And his mother also had this very kind of aristocratic uh, lineage as well, that she was from the South and had uh, like a great grandparent who was both uh, the governor and then a senator from Mississippi. So she came from, uh, you know, from from wealth uh, and privilege also. And it's a really unusual way for somebody who grows up to become a comedian to be raised that way because more often they come from, you know, lives of, of deprivation or there's some kind of suffering or just from a background where they're used to being the underdog in some way. And Robin's uh, childhood and upbringing was, was not like that at all, I think, except for the fact that, you know, he felt a lot of loneliness. He's by uh, himself a lot. Yeah. Even though, I mean, every school that he went to, he was popular. He had friends, was good at academics, was good at sports. But in his home life, uh, certainly felt like, you know, his father was not around very much. His mom also kind of came and went. And so he was kind of left to his own devices a lot and spent a lot of time basically just, you know, living in these rented mansions and playing with his toy collections and playing with uh, toy soldiers in particular. And that was a big part of his kind of interior imaginative life was playing with his toys. You talk about the the school he went to in Detroit, which sounded a lot like the the kind of school. Oh, yeah, the in, Dead Poet Society. In Dead po- yeah, yeah, right? Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that, so they uprooted and left right before his senior year, which he had already been elected to be the president of yeah, his class. Yeah, he would have been his senior class president had, had they stayed. That's right. I just wonder, I mean, and I don't know if you wondered this as you were writing. I mean, he moved from there to, to just outside San Francisco, incredibly liberal area. Yeah. It's where he picked up the Hawaiian shirts and everything. Exactly. And also, this was in 1969. So you're really coming into, you know, San Francisco and Marin County at like, you know, the tail end of like the summer of love and the right. sort of hippie era. It, you know, he talked about that. I mean, it was a huge uh, cultural shock for him because he came from a fairly kind of uh, you know, button down Midwestern life and then to land in, you know, this much more permissive culture, uh, you know, really uh, turned him upside down. And yes, he like absorbed all that and he enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. But I think you can never totally leave behind the person that he used to be. And some part of that was always inside of him, that more kind of interior and proper uh, person. So interesting because you just, you know, life is life, but you wonder what had happened, what would have happened had he, you know, gone there, been a president, you know, because yeah. it was so different. Yeah. Well, his dad's sort of great aspiration when he went on, when Robin first went off to college was that Robin was going to grow up to be a diplomat. And I can't imagine a world where Robin Williams ended up as a, a diplomat and not, you know, a comedian and an actor. Right. Our world would be very, very different right now. Well, we're thankful that we had him for the 63 (laughs) years and what he left, the 69 movies that he left us with. Absolutely. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from David's cost time with Robin Williams. 
He says that he shared some of the behind-the-scenes life experiences with the comedian and could even relate to him a bit, but he doesn't know that any one person ever really knew 100% of Williams' inner monologue. I think he is really a, a singular talent, but he's still kind of an, an enigma. I think that, you know, you still watch what he did, and if you can think about it at all in relationship to what we know about who he was off stage and off camera, and you still it's still kind of hard to hold in your mind those two people, that he could do both of those things and was both of those people. Wickedly funny and frequently depressive in dealing with substance abuse, we'll find out more about the life and times of Robin Williams from author Dave Itzkoff when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. One of the things that you said that when you went on this tour with him, this comedy tour with him, that he, he pretty much was an open door. He let you in to see a lot of things. Yeah. He did not let you see his pre-show ritual. Yeah. There was like basically like the last like 30 to 45 minutes before he would go out on stage, he would just go to his dressing room and close the door and be in there by himself. And you know, nobody went in there, not his manager, not his assistant, nobody from the theater, certainly not me. And I kind of uh, never really found out what he did during that time or why he did that. And it could have been, well, you know, this is something I do just to kind of like get in a certain headspace and, and meditate and just kind of clear out my brain before I go out and face the crowd. Maybe it was sort of preserving a, a, a little bit of a mystery about himself. Like, you know, I just I want people to not know everything <laughs> about me and I want people to wonder what's happening in this huh period of time. But I think also as I talked to more people about him and certainly after after his death, not that everybody had that exact same experience, but everybody felt something analogous to that, that like even the people that knew him really intimately all felt like he kept something from them. Different, different people saw him in different ways. It wasn't the same something for everybody, but nobody felt like he brought them sort of all the way into his world, that he was always keeping people a little bit at a distance in one way or another. That's so interesting. One of the things that that I wondered, you know, with Zach and with Robin, you wrote Cocaine Son, a memoir That's right. about your father who was addicted and even some of some addiction issues you had in college, right? Yeah. Do you think that that helped you draw a connection? I mean, because, you know, obviously Robin had a lot of addiction issues. Yeah, I, I think about that sometimes, and I don't know if it was a conscious uh, thing, but I'm sure in, in some way or another, I'm sure that, that, that I responded to that, that I saw elements of my own father in him because my father also had gotten clean, and when he came out the other side, he was kind of a different person too in terms of his disposition. He was somebody who was also kind of relentlessly confessional and also wanted to talk about, uh, you know, what addiction had done to him and and his understanding of how he had hurt people. And I think also the relationship that, as you said, I mean, that Robin had to Zach and that Zach had to Robin, that it was not, it was not a kind of typical father-son relationship, that there were times where 
Zach kind of had to be the parent to Robin, had to guide him through, and not always related to drugs or substance abuse, but in, in later years, I mean, uh, Robin would kind of lay a lot of, you know, career problems at Zach's feet and talk to him about how Robin, you know, felt uneasy about his place in the film industry and what do I do next? And those are hard things for a son to have to kind of uh, negotiate and to to grapple with. And, and But, you know, Zach was was certainly there for him. It just, uh, again, not not the typical way that, that fathers and sons usually relate to each other. So that's something you could kind of identify with. I think so. I mean, that, that you know, if you when you have a parent who is an addict or has been an addict, in one way or another, you have had to take care of them and the way that they're supposed to be taking care of you. You have to be there for them in some way or another. You have to hear their problems. You may have to go and extricate them from situations that they can't get themselves out of. So uh, we've seen our parents in that state in one way or another. Did you guys ever talk about that, you and Robin? Not not quite on that level. I mean, I, I, I he knew. I mean, certainly by the time we got together, I told him that I, and I didn't want to sort of throw it in front of him and say, hey, read my book. But he knew <laughs> that I had had some of those experiences. I, but I, like I said, I feel like he would have opened up to probably anybody that had that kind of face time with him because that's, that's just where he was kind of emotionally and psychically at the time. That's just where his, his brain was. Let's talk a little bit about his film career. I mean, <laughs> 69 movies, and, and it seemed like he'd have this amazing role, blockbuster, really well-received, and then boom. Yeah. I mean, a tear, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you write in a book in your book that he won the Academy Award for Goodwill Hunting. That's right, and then, then went right to the set of... Patch Adams. That's right, which was not his most beloved film by any stretch, yeah. And that's really kind of the the variance and the, you know, kind of the oscillations in his career. I think people forget it took a while. Even Good Morning Vietnam was his first real kind of bonafide blockbuster hit. And that was, you know, 10 years into his movie career, uh, like almost 10 years after Popeye. A lot of the movies up leading up to that, you have some curiosities like uh, – World According to Garp and Moscow on the Hudson, uh, but none of them were big commercial successes and certainly not, you know, real critical hits either. Uh, and then you do get into this run of, uh, you know, Good Morning Vietnam and, and Dead Poet Society and Mrs. Doubtfire, which for the longest time was like the most successful commercial movie he had ever made. And then there's a real kind of up and down quality after that in the year, certainly in the 90s and 2000s where as you say, you know, he would make a movie that would be a huge hit and then another one that was just an absolute dud. And you see the kind of push and pull, I think, in terms of the kinds of roles that he wanted to do that, you know, the more interesting characters and the people who weren't just kind of like generic comedy heroes, those were happening more in independent movies. But the independent films uh, didn't always pay really well. Uh, and so in order to sort of offset that or at least like, you know, bring home the money and, and, you know, have a livelihood. He had to do, uh, you know, a big studio comedy maybe every year. And to some extent, he was at the mercy of what was being written for him. He was as inventive as he was. He never thought of himself as a writer. He didn't write any of his own screenplays. And, you know, he was sort of at the at the whim of, you know, this is the movie that you're doing this year. And, you know, maybe it's... Uh, you know, RV or maybe it's, uh, you know, old dogs. And, and we don't really remember those particularly fondly. You also saw, talk about how, like, he really played 
parts that reflected humanity. All the times that he played a, <clears throat> a doctor, a teacher. I mean, yeah. there were a lot of those roles. Yeah, I mean, you know, often, you know, sometimes kind of despondent people too. I mean, one of the classic examples is the kind of uh, that eccentric, vagrant character that he plays in The Fisher King, which is really one of his best performances. And we kind of forgotten about it a little bit mm -hmm. just because it's been overshadowed by other films of his. But that really shows you, I mean, that was uh, a man who was extremely down on his luck and really suffered. Uh, and Robin always tried to find characters uh, to some degree like that, people who he felt sympathy towards, people who he felt like he wanted to investigate, you know, somebody who had suffered loss like that and was, you know, uh, driven to that kind of a life, what would do that to a person? How would they behave? Later on in his career, when you look at some of the darker movies like uh, One Hour Photo and yeah. Insomnia, where he's, I mean, he's literally playing either, you know, criminals or serial killers. Yeah. By no means like the kinds of characters that you would think Robin Williams would play or would want to play. But he had that kind of curiosity also about, the darker side of humanity and what drives people to do really awful things and, and research those roles, uh, you know, pretty, pretty thoroughly as well. Let's talk about toward the end of his career. I mean, people talked about how well, he, you mentioned in your book how he was having troubles on the crazy ones, remembering the lines or uh, Night at the Museum. Yeah. Right? And like just well, the last, shifts in his personality, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly around that period because, uh, you know, the crazy ones was his last uh, sort of ongoing TV role. That was a kind of uh, – that show was a, a misfire and didn't yeah. last very long. And he was – starting to experience some health problems on that show and didn't totally know what was going wrong. And some of it had to do with just, you know, uh, like physical problems, uh, uh, you know, problems with his, his posture and his digestion. And some of it was, you know, mental and memory. Yeah. And certainly by the time he made the last Night at the Museum movie, uh, you know, then things had gotten pretty uh, drastic in the sense that, you know, he felt like he couldn't remember his lines anymore. He was having really significant mood swings. And even, uh, you know, his makeup artist, who was a woman he'd worked with pretty much his whole career and was traveling with him to make this movie and just on a night, you know, she suggested to him maybe just, you know, go out to a club and make a surprise appearance and you'll see how happy people are to see you. And he kind of, you know, broke down in her arms and was like, I can't, I don't know how to be funny anymore. And that was such a devastating thing for him to say and for her to have to hear that he right. really felt like he was in this, uh, a terrible place and, and, you know, losing control of himself in some way. And, and, and when we look at what happened after he passed and they did the autopsy and found he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. That's right. But it wasn't until after his death and they were able to actually look at, you know, samples of his brain tissue. And that's where they saw evidence of what's called uh, Lewy body dementia, which is also a brain disease like Parkinson's. But uh, Parkinson's really uh, affects just the, the motor part of the brain. So mm -hmm. that accounts for sort of the, the movement problems and sure. the posture problems. Uh, Lewy body also attacks, you know, parts of the brains that have to do with how we form memories and even how we sort of process information. And so sadly, the people who have this disease, uh, they can have really significant mood swings. They can have hallucinations. They sometimes, uh, the people who have it can kind of they seem to shut down in their own body where they can be sitting in front of you and you can see that kind of a light is on, but they're not reacting to anything. And certainly all the people that, you know, saw Robin in the last uh, months and weeks of his life all describe him 
in some way or another experiencing what seemed like, you know, the symptoms of that disease. And that was not anything that he knew that he had in his own lifetime. But even he kind of questioned that Parkinson's diagnosis, right? He, yeah, I he, mean, people... He kind of felt there was something more, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly people who have Lewy body do sometimes get an initial diagnosis of Parkinson's, and, and it's, you know, not until other symptoms become clear that then they're diagnosed with Lewy body. Uh, he never got that diagnosis, but yes, he was skeptical. He even, you know, he asked his doctor, like, if he had Alzheimer's because of... You know, some of these other things he was experiencing, he certainly yeah. felt, uh, you know, what he was going through, he knew it was pretty drastic. And, and yet a lot of that didn't come out of the Louis body because the family at that point were just... It was really complicated because, yes, I mean, certainly his death caught everybody off guard. No one uh, had any way of preparing for it or knowing that that was, you know, coming. And, you know, there wasn't a lot that was known about what was happening to him at the end of his life. And I think it was very difficult... Uh, you know, for the family to want to put that out there. It was very uncomfortable. And there was already this kind of discussion in the public about uh, mental health and depression. Yeah. And even though that was, I think, constructive for people to participate in, it didn't really uh, completely describe what Robin was experiencing. And I think it was uh, an uncomfortable thing to have to sort of, you know, pierce that or to say, well, we respect that this is this conversation is taking place, but it doesn't really apply to Robin. I think that was hard to do. So once this information came out, I mean, it was some months after his death. And I think to some extent people had, uh, you know, understandably people had kind of moved on. Either people thought they had been given the answer or they just weren't, you know, laser focused in the same way that they were at the time of his death, which certainly everybody knew about, everybody was aware of and reacted to in some way. You write in your book that, you know, the paradox of a man who has both wildly outgoing and painfully introverted. Um, you know, after all the research that you did, after all the interviews that you did, what do you think about Robin Williams and and his legacy? I mean, I think I think what you described, I think that's kind of, you know, who he is and who he remains. That I think he is really a, a singular talent and, uh, you know, his body of work, there's very few people who, you know, certainly in, in American culture and even in, you know, the wider, you know, film culture and comedy culture that have I have produced the kind of material that he has. And I think a lot of it is going to endure. But he's still kind of an enigma. I think that, you know, you still watch what he did. And if you can think about it at all in relationship to what we know about who he was off stage and off camera and you still it's still kind of hard to hold in your mind those two people that he could do both of those things and was both of those people yeah i mean do you think that there will ever be another robin williams or will it just be someone who's trying to be robin williams yeah i th it's it's interesting because you know he doesn't have any sort of uh, disciples there were certainly other comedians who admire him and and you know thought of him as a kind of an inspiration but it wasn't like he had a group of comedians that he was sort of training to take over from him one day. And there's not really anybody out there right now who you could say is like doing, uh, you know, a modern version of what Robin did. I think what he did was so specific that like if you tried to get up on a stage and do anything comparable, people would just say that you were ripping him off. And so in that sense, he doesn't really have any any heirs. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was my pleasure. Thanks it's for very having enjoyable. me. Very enjoyable. Thank Thanks. you. 
Dave Itzkoff on the singular talent that Robin Williams seems to have had and that he reflects in his biography about the actor and comedian. Now to close out the podcast, we'll listen to Dave Itzkoff once again as he reads a passage from his book, Robin, from a section where Robin Williams was just at the dawn of stardom. Out of nowhere and through no further effort of his own, Robin was being sought to star in his own network sitcom. As remarkable a prospect as this was for a young actor who'd never had a gig for more than a few weeks, his managers were unsure if they wanted him to take it. We felt it would be a mistake to put him on television at that point. I said, Gary, we really think this guy has a film career. But Marshall had a persuasive way of getting what he wanted. And he told Bresner, look, we're just doing Robin. He's gonna wear his clothing, it will be him. Sensing that Bresner was coming around to the idea, he said, this is television, Larry, we're not doing Greek theater. Buddy Mora, Bresner's partner, was tasked with telling Robin that he was being offered a TV show on the number one television network produced by the studio responsible for the number one and number two sitcoms with a guaranteed order of 22 episodes rather than the 13 that most first season shows customarily receive. When Mora told him that he'd be paid $1,500 a week, Robin, in his innocence, screamed excitedly on the other end of the phone, wow! To which Mora, the old showbiz hand, replied, schmuck, it's $15,000 a week. I was just teasing you. That's New York Times culture writer Dave Itzkoff as we spoke with him in November of 2019 about his book, Robin, a biography of Robin Williams by publisher Pan McMillian. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Angie Weidinger. Photography was by Peter Foggy, Ken Calcaterra, and John Ross. Audio is by Ben Smith. Editing and graphics by Jane Ballou. The supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. ATC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.